I'm Dave Baker, the writer of Star Trek Voyager Seven's Reckoning, published by IDW Comics, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Like many of you, I grew up reading comics. I can still remember the first ones I ever got my hands on, and I actually still have them in my collection. In fact, reading comics is what helped me to become a better reader. It expanded my vocabulary, and it began to build a visual library in my mind for how to tell a story with pictures, and how to understand those stories when other people are presenting them to me. And I should add that one of the first comics I ever read was in fact a Star Trek The Next Generation comic from DC. Star Trek and comics have gone hand in hand since day one of the franchise, and my era of reading, which would be the late 80s, early 90s through today, they've been done by basically everybody, from DC to Marvel to Malibu, and even a manga series from Tokyo Pop back in the early 2000s. But these days, the license is held by IDW Comics, who have been in control of it since 2006. Since then, they've released some truly great series and continue to expand the story of Star Trek through sequential art. Today, we're speaking with one of those people who are, in fact, currently contributing to the Star Trek comic book universe and has a new miniseries coming out in November, and that would be Dave Baker. Dave has written all sorts of things, from cartoons to movies to commercials, but his passion is comics. It also turns out that another one of his passions is Star Trek. And he's brought a lifetime of being a hardcore fan of Trek and a comics geek, which I say in the most affectionate way possible because I am one too. And mix these two loves together to make this new four-issue miniseries from Star Trek Voyager called Seven's Reckoning. This miniseries is drawn by Angel Hernandez and colored by Rhonda Patterson, and is a story that could easily fit into the canon of the TV series. In addition to this, back in 2018, Dave contributed to the Star Trek Waypoint special, which I also highly recommend. And he's got, of course, other non-Trek titles that he's been working on and has worked on that we're going to discuss today that I think some of you might be interested in. So today, this is going to be a casual conversation about comics. And I should add that Dave does drop a few F-bombs here and there. So if you've got sensitive ears, you've been warned. But really, this episode today turned out to be more of a chat between two lovers of comic books who also just happen to be big fans of Star Trek. So we had a lot of fun today, and I think you're going to enjoy what Dave has to say. And besides, a few naughty words here and there don't make his efforts any less like Starfleet. And after you hear more about his experiences and writing a Star Trek comic, I think you'll agree. Before we jump into our interview, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces. You can also support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you want to check out some of our merch and put Trek Untold on a shirt, hoodie, mug, sticker, or something else, head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to proudly display how much you like this podcast. And if you do happen to get some Trek Untold merch, go ahead and tag us on social media and let us know you got it. We'd love to see it. But most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating and a review. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, as I'm sure you already know, and leaving ratings and reviews helps people find us when they're searching for these types of shows. If you're already following us or offering your support in whatever way you can, be it a follow, review, monetarily, or even just listening today, thank you for the help. 
There's a family of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we appreciate you joining us here each and every week on the show. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people. But you'll hear more about them a little bit later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen here, we've got one of our guests for today. We're speaking with comics writer, well, not just a comics writer, he writes plenty of other things besides that. But in particular today, he's a comics writer because we're talking about his new Star Trek miniseries with IDW Comics. That's Mr. Dave Baker. Dave, how's it going today? Hey, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. So before we get too deep into your new Star Trek comic, though, I do want to ask you, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, man. Earliest memory of Star Trek. I think my earliest memory of Star Trek is probably I had a VHS tape that my I think my grandmother taped over because she thought she knew I was really into Star Wars. And I think she thought Star Trek was Star Wars. So she taped Star Trek four off of TV and I watched it thinking initially because I was really young. I was like 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. Uh, and I initially I was like, oh, this is going to be a new Star Wars movie. Awesome. And then I got into it and I was like, this isn't Star Wars. What is this? And so uh, I, I did really like the fourth movie. It didn't make a ton of sense to me at the time because I didn't know who these characters were. And I, I think I was kind of vaguely aware that Star Trek was a thing. But it's I a weird one really to get started with, for sure. It's a weird, it was a weird one to get started with, but I, a couple weeks after that, then she also taped Star Trek, is, is Undiscovered Country, Undiscovered Country 6, she also taped 6, so I had 4 and 6, which is also a very strange movie, to like, try and, okay, so I kind of understand who these characters are, and now I'm going to watch the last version of them, it's going to be on screen, until the next one when Shatner comes back, but you know what I mean, like, it's the last grand hurrah i mean at least it Um, wasn't five yeah yeah there's great stuff in five but there's also a lot of really bad stuff in five like the row 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 your boat is pretty bad but i love the idea the 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 you know the base foundational idea of spock has a brother who's antithetical to everything he stands for he's pure emotion and he's a religious zealot that's a great idea too bad it was never set up and we've known the character for 30 years and we've never heard him talk about a brother before. But the idea that there is a Vulcan who is fueled by rage is amazing. And, and also that that scene where Kirk is like, you want my pain? You can't have my pain. I need my pain. Like that is like so, it so encapsulates James T. Kirk to me for multiple reasons. One, because it's a great moment in the movie that Shatner just milks. Too, because maybe if you know you maybe if you examined the fact that you are holding on to your pain and not trying to heal and move through things maybe if you talk to a therapist in the future where it's this idyllic utopic place and everyone is their best selves maybe things would go a little bit easier for you jimmy maybe i don't know maybe that's just crazy but i like i like that moment a lot in the movie um and then I also really love the the opening where they're on that sand planet and there's the, you know, the guy is crying and, oh man, so great. Did you then fall in love with TNG since that would have been around the same era, I guess, right? 
Yeah, I I then for somehow I somehow I got a couple episodes of the original series on VHS and then started watching TNG on TV and I I liked TNG a lot but because of the way because of the way the syndication was I always ended up seeing like the same like four episodes. So I really liked it, but it was that thing where you're like, "Oh yeah, TNG's oh man, it's the one with Luxana Troy again." That one, I always ended up seeing that one, and then I always ended up seeing uh, later in the run, Home, the one where uh, after Best of Both Worlds Part Two, where they go back to Earth and Picard. Like the first time I saw it, I didn't have any context for it, so I was just kind of like, "Why aren't they in space? Like, when, this is this is cool, I guess, but like, why aren't they just like fighting aliens or something?" And like, it's just a weird episode to always catch in syndication for some for whatever reason. That was that was the that was the episode I saw. Well, it's a good thing you actually got deeper into Trek because if that's your early experiences, I mean, man, that that's a rough way to get uh, into this franchise. It really is. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a smooth on ramp. That's not for at sure. all. No, but I but I did I did obviously fall in love with it, and you know I obviously I've watched all of the shows multiple times except for the animated series. I've only seen the animated series once all the way through. Um, there's good stuff in there, but it's just it it just doesn't it doesn't quite capture it for me. Um, but maybe I should revisit. Maybe yeah. it really really is great. I don't know. I, the last time I watched it was a significant amount of time ago. So it's worth checking out again for sure. But yeah, growing up, I guess you were also were a comic book kid like myself. Uh, so I'm curious now. You know, what were your comic book influences? Who did you like to read? And more so, did you ever read any of the Star Trek comics? So what did I like to read? Uh, the thing that got me into comics to begin with was uh, Hergé Tintin. I'm a big Tintin fan. Um, the first comic I bought off of a shelf somewhere was in a grocery store. It was in the, it was in the Safeways on the corner of uh, Sun, Sunrise and Swan in Tucson, Arizona. And it was a Johnny Quest Dark Horse comic. Um, and then from there, I picked up at, at, at Borders, I guess it was Walden's books at the time, I think, they had those remainder packs of just like, we couldn't sell these shitty Spider-Man comics, so fuck it, here's 10 of them. And I got one of those. It was a very strange, again, a strange way to get in because it was during that era where Spider-Man, it was, the, it was called the Identity Crisis, where he was five different superheroes at the same time, Dusk, Prodigy, Ricochet, and Hornet, so four. Okay, oh that was like one uh, of the worst things. Oh man, it was... It didn't make any sense to me at the time, but I was so enamored by the idea that you could like build a world on a two-dimensional piece of paper because it was something that was simultaneously instantly communicable to me of, oh, someone drew this. I don't know how the fuck they drew it because this is so complex, but somebody drew this. Um, and, you know, that that friction again of like, I know that I can do this, but how the fuck do I do this was just mesmerizing to me as a child. I would fill sketchbooks with um, drawings of both Tintin and Spider-Man for years and years and years and years and years. Um, but the, the stuff I really respond to, I, I, I mean, I did, I did what everybody does, right? I kind of got in with the big stuff, like the mainstream superhero shit. And then I kind of went to the indie stuff and, you know, some of my favorite com like my favorite comic of all time is Casanova by Matt Fraction and Gabriel Ba and Fabio Moon. It's amazing. Um, uh, it, I I just love it. It's it's my fucking bible. Like it's the reason I moved to L.A. Basically to be a screenwriter. Like I I I've had more 
deeply visceral moments reading that book than any comic ever. Um, I think it's one of the best comics ever made. And also just so specifically targeted at my interests. Like, I love spy genre fiction. I love weirdly autobiographical, deep, deeply personal comics. I love um, highly dense comics, you know, stuff that has lots of panels on the page and like weird experimental form and boundary pushing stuff. Um, but I also love, you know, I, I like another one of my favorite comics is Wet Moon by Sophie Campbell. Like that, you know, a uh, bunch of sad teenage girls going to a art school in Rhode Island, like, that sounds right up my alley. Like that's, that's everything I want in a comic is right there. And uh, I think Sophie Campbell is one of the, the best living illustrators ever. I think she's just unreal, unreal talented. Um, uh, and then currently like, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm obsessed with, uh, I'm obsessed with Jillian Tamaki. I think she's wonderful. I love this one summer in skim and, and her solo work. The, the shorts that she's been doing are just great. I think she's again, like it's just, it's, it, it's nice because it keeps you on your it keeps you on your toes right it keeps you it keeps you fresh when you're like oh fuck i can't believe i have to wake up and do this again today I've, i don't want to look at this blank piece of paper and then like you're scrolling through instagram and jillian tamaki just posted some stupid little editorial drawing that took her five seconds and you're like oh my god that's so good i do uh like star trek comics uh um nicole who i work with and did the waypoint um she's obsessed with tom sutton um the original dc era tom sutton uh comics so she like collects the um whenever we go back issue diving i like i like that stuff a lot tom sutton is amazing but i also really like the weird fucked up marvel stuff for the around the motion picture where they were just like how do we turn this one movie into a status quo that we can keep making comics out of and i don't know that they're all that successful but man they're weird and goofy and i love them um I think my favorite Star Trek comic though of all time is DC graphic novel by Chris Claremont and Adam Hughes, a debt of honor. Um, it's, it tells a story in between Star Trek three and four. And it's basically like Kirk mourning the loss of the enterprise. And it takes place over like 40 years. And it's so cool because that's something that a comic can't do that the TV or the comic can do that. The TV shows can't where, you know, Adam Hughes is such a brilliant, illustrator and draftsman of likeness and he draws them from when they're like 19 to when they're 60 and you see them age and wrinkle and it's really almost a body horror comic but not at all um but i really i love i love that 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 piece of work i think it's great like basically every single major comic company at one point in time has had the star trek license and it's either been really good or it's been really terrible. I mean, I'm looking at you, Malibu Comics. Uh, sometimes it's been oh, really... Oh, man, that Malibu yeah. shit is so bad. No, it's not so good. It's so bad. But there are some hidden gems. Like when Marvel got the license again, like towards the mid-90s, um, there was actually some pretty decent stuff. There was some stuff that was also kind of not so great. Um, but I actually just reread the uh, Starfleet Academy series. I don't know if you ever read that. But uh, that was actually pretty good, too. Which which one? The Starfleet Academy one from Paramount or whatever? Uh, well, it was Marvel Paramount. So it had, uh, it had Nog. It had... Uh, Vulcan yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you know, yeah. So yeah. I don't want to give too much away, but that one's worth hunting down too. But yeah, it's it's really great that you know Star Trek has always been around, and it also has had this rich history of always being a comic. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like even even before the show was on the air, it was a comic. It was published in in England, and they had those goofy, weird two page where uh comics published in was it like a, was it Adventure magazine or like that's going way back. 
Yeah, and like and like they didn't even know his name. They couldn't get his name right. His name was Captain Kurt at first. <laughs> I love Captain like, Kurt. Oh man, Captain Kurt, amazing. Love that guy. He's he's awesome. But yeah, I I I love the fact that because Star Trek has been around for so long and because it's arguably one of the first actual franchises, it's it's kind of Planet of the Apes and Star Trek. Those are the first two, you know, transmedia franchises that it wasn't always finely manicured and there wasn't always a vision for what it meant to be in the Star Trek universe. And it's, it's very interesting to me to look at those kind of like weird nodules and barnacles along the, the long arc of Star Trek's existence and kind of examine like, oh, this is when they tried to make it weird and fucked up and like cartoony, but it was before the animated show, so it didn't really work yet. And this is when they tried to make it really dark and gritty or in the 90s, like that Paramount Marvel stuff where it was just like extreme, where everyone had bangs and like giant muscles. Where you're like, I don't know if that's what Star Trek's about, but I'm, all right, okay. I like um, how your definition like, of extreme is bangs. I, I guess I just meant like the, the way, because it didn't Jeff Matsuda draw some of that stuff? I'm like, I think he or did Starfleet like, Academy, didn't he? I think, I think Jeff Matsuda drew Starfleet Academy, yeah. And like my idea, like my mental image, it's been a little while since I've seen the book, so I could be completely wrong. Apologies You're right to Jeff Matsuda. You're right. But Don't worry memory, about it. My memory is that it's like, what's up? I've got fucking bangs. I'm in Starfleet. It's like, I don't, I really don't, I really don't know if this is the thing guys, but maybe it is. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, but I, I love that aspect of Trek where there's so many things that have been put out and then immediately been like, mm, nope, 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 nope. And it's, it's interesting to me what elements of that stay and what don't. And that's kind of how I was approaching, you know, Seven's Reckoning of like, I want to make one of those books that when IDW doesn't have the license anymore and when it goes somewhere else and when they inevitably reboot it, because we all know that's what happens with Star Trek stuff, that mine might maybe be one of the ones that people remember as like, oh, but you know what? That Seven book was pretty cool. Like, like what was the first uh spock novel um oh god i can see the the cover it's like a red or an orange cover with half of his face and kirk is like kneeling on the front but like that's one of those the first you know that's one of the first times that they were like we're gonna take it and turn this spock origin story into a novel and like that's still like even now 50 years later one of the things that people point to is like that was a thing whereas you know the like middle grade young adult adventure stories that were told in the, the, the in the, in the nineties as prose novels, those Starfleet Academy novels. I don't know that those are necessarily held in as high regard, you know, that's not to say that the people who weren't making them weren't really trying, but also uh, if you've ever read any of them, there's some stuff in there where you're just like, have you ever seen the show? Like what? Like, why is Sarek just, like, hugging everybody and laughing? Like, what is this? So, yeah, I think that there's there's a wide, you know, there's a tableau of things that exist in the Star Trek world. There is a lot of uh, room to play around. And there's also a lot of room to trip and fall and, and fuck up. And I distinctly did not want to be one of the people who distinctly uh, 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 walked into the door jam. That was, that was my main goal. <laughs> First goal was... Make the best thing ever. Second goal was just avoid the fucking door jam. 
Well, on that note, I think that's a perfect segue to actually jump into your comic. So, Dave, you're writing now the new Star Trek Voyager miniseries called Seven's Reckoning. So uh, can you tell us where the story takes place in Voyager's timeline and what this miniseries is about? Yeah, sure. Uh, So, like you said, it's called Star Trek Voyager Seven's Reckoning, and it takes place during the fourth season of the show in between the episodes Scientific Method and Year of Hell Part One. Um, It's... uh, it's about the Voyager crew coming, you know, trying to get back to Earth, and they find a derelict vessel uh, adrift in space, um, which is of unrecognizable origin. They uh, go on board to see if the crew is needing in need of assistance, and they discover that it is an intergenerational colonization vessel that has had some sort of warp malfunction and has just been drifting for hundreds of years, and all of the crew uh, are in cryogenic stasis chambers. So they kind of, you know, wake everybody up and they're like, hey, what's going on here? And they discover that the ship uh, is home to an alien race that has two uh, distinct class structures. One is kind of an aristocracy, kind of more ruling um, elite class. And then one is a more kind of indentured servitude, uh, stricken like worker class. And they're the lower class uh, living situation and, and work situation is, is borderline slavery. Like it's really, it's really dark. And so the crew of the Voyager strikes a deal with this derelict vessel. Like we will help you repair your, uh, warp drive. If you give us some supplies, uh, so we can try and make it home too. Cause we're kind of on parallel missions to try and get home. And so seven of nine goes over to the other ship and becomes kind of involved in this alien culture and kind of, uh, befriends a member of the alien culture that's of the lower class and kind of basically starts not necessarily sowing seeds of doubt, but just kind of like asking logical questions that cause the power struggle that ca- cause a power struggle within the two alien classes. And it, the, the story is kind of influenced by the TNG episode, um, the outcast and the uh, enterprise episode cogenitor. Um, so they're kind of, you know, I, I like those kind of, uh, we're asking a, a philosophical fiction wrapped up in sci-fi and we kind of see an alien culture through the lens of a character that our, um, Starfleet character is kind of befriending and bonding with. And, you know, maybe the Starfleet character serves as kind of this inciting incident into this alien culture, um, trying to reckon with some sort of aspect of their society, whatever that may be. Um, and the, the, the alien culture specifically, um, they, their culture revolves around story. So all of the um, structures and kind of um, myths of their world are all in air quotes story mechanics. So like their ship is a narrative and they call their leader the grand protagonist. And like they're, they're very obsessed with this idea of um, we are just one iteration of a, a, a long running story and we're kind of embodying it right now, but there will, people will come later and embody the story. And, but they, the story kind of repeats itself over and over again, iteratively. And the, this story that, that kind of hierarchical approach to life um, is basically used to enslave this lower class. And so seven's presence causes these people to kind of have to ask like, is is this story accurate is this the truth or should we 
reevaluate this and like basically the kind of theme of the of the miniseries overall is that you know stories the stories that we tell each other matter and the story we we tell ourselves matters like most of all yeah that very much comes off in what i've read so far and uh you know it's it's very much clear in the first issue about that which i've had the chance now to read um you know for me like it reminds me a lot of uh, some of gene yang's work with avatar the last airbender because it's very much interweaving real life politics real life social issues uh, ethical and moral dilemmas into this fictional narrative and that's of course also what star trek has always been about um, for yourself as creative influences, you mentioned some Star Trek episodes that you kind of pulled from or, or kind of inspired you. Uh, but in terms of comics, what do you like that uh, would also kind of go into the similar vein of what you're doing here with this miniseries? Oh, man. I mean, there's there's tons of stuff. Uh, the thing I love about comics is that it's it's such an ever expanding medium. And right now is arguably the best time in the history of the medium. Like there's so many important people making important works that are like, medium defining and it it kind of drives me crazy when people are like yeah but the 80s were dope which is like yeah sure okay there was a lot of cool stuff that happened then there's also a lot of really cool stuff happening now like i love what jonathan hickman is doing right now like you know on the mainstream side with you know him doing the x-men i think it's amazing and then also just like his book nightly news is very relevant to the conversation that we're having about socio-political topics kind of filtered through his genre lens and kind of being able to examine these issues that are very, very pertinent today. I mean, Nightly News came out, whatever, like almost 10 years ago at this point, but it's still so relevant about the role of, that the media is playing, the distrust of the media, unfortunately, that's happening, and the way that society is kind of warping itself based on the flow of exchange of ideas and information. And, and it's kind of interesting because right now, you know, in America, we have this huge problem where, with rise of conspiracy theorists and people who are using a do your own research rallying cry where they have a, a supreme distaste of information that's been vetted and concrete and they value information that is um you know peer-to-peer -peer or, or individualistic in nature more so which is obviously easily corruptible and just blatantly fake so much of the time and it's it's that story of you know the idea of story is very pertinent to the QAnon thing that's happening right now. I mean, to the point to, to the point that I don't know if you know this, but QAnon is literally named after Q, the fucking Star Trek character. Like the conspiracy theory started as like a troll live role playing exercise with people on like 4chan and 8chan. And because of lack of internet literacy and kind of lack of understanding of how some of these subcultures work, middle American people who maybe you know i'm they're i'm sure they're bright and they're inquisitive and they're they're seeking out these you know things that feel real to them and the things that feel real to them are stories that are crafted directly to be at their level and and kind of work as as a as a, an incisor just just right to get to the the core of their fears and 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 hopes and dreams and like they hope that the people that are currently in positions of power are just and they're you know waging secret wars to protect our our liberties and our children and they're doing the right thing but in reality we we all know that that's probably not the case and even just thinking about the QAnon story on like a broad level do we really think that there's a subterranean cannibalistic cult running the government like 
are is sex trafficking a big thing? Yes, it's awful. Is child abuse a thing? Yes, it's awful. Do I really think that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton are eating children? I find that really, really hard to believe. And, and they could be gorns in disguise. We're not really sure. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, even that David Icke conspiracy theory about, you know, the, like you're just referencing the lizard people running the world is like, that is so interesting to me because it it gets at the same root fear. Like the fear of that conspiracy theory is that I can't trust people on the surface and it's represented visually, right? It's like their skin is fake and they're really something else underneath. And like the QAnon thing is so similar. And that's, that's something that I really feel passionate about that. Like, and I don't even necessarily know what this means because I don't have a solution for it. I'm just a person like everybody else. Like I, I don't know how the structures of our society, which are quickly being eroded are repaired um, to a degree that we will have, in air quotes, normalcy anytime soon. Um, and the way that I know how to contribute to that discussion is to attempt to illustrate that through metaphor and specifically through the lens of Star Trek and to attempt to make something that is both a really great genre story that has adventure and it's fun and and is exciting and uh, grapples with with these issues, you know, the in the way that uh, Star Trek has in the past, but at the same time, hopefully, asks a little bit more probing questions and causes people to think and maybe evaluate. Like, oh, you know, I was kind of getting into this QAnon Facebook group, but if if I'm thinking about like what does this story that I'm consuming mean and how does it apply to me, maybe there's Hmm, maybe there's something I can think about that. Now, do I really think that this Star Trek licensed comic from IDW and CBS and, and myself is really going to change the world? Probably not. But maybe, maybe it could change one person. That would be really, really cool to me. There's always pundits out there who are saying that, you know, Star Trek needs to keep to being just a sci-fi show. But Star Trek has always been political at its roots. Really, the only thing that's changed ultimately has just been that the world has become a more complicated place and issues have broadened to be much much more different things um but you know i think what you guys are doing right now with this series in particular uh you know tackling classism with star trek as that metaphor uh you know i think it's really great i think you're doing a really great job and and also i have to say at this point you know it doesn't really feel like it's preachy and that's you know when it's a good good thing when it's a good piece of writing of, of narrative fiction then it's not going to be just on the nose in your face uh, and it feels very natural it really does feel like a solid episode of star trek voyager um, so. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, th that's actually one of the things. So in the story, you know, there's this ruling class that is the current ruling class. And they have there's these lizard people that have two arms and whatnot. And then there's the lower class, which are these big, like larger bodied uh, lizard people with four arms. But if you pay attention, um, the the kind of myth that they tell themselves is that the four armed people used to rule everything and they were really cruel and shitty. So then there was a this mythical kind of Spartacus-esque figure called the Dawnbringer who kind of realigned everything to the way that it should be. And now the, the all is right with the world and the two armed people rule the world, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, logically it's, you know, you know where the thing is going. Like I'm not spoiling anything, but I, I think you can assume by saying that there is an oppressed class and they have to kind of evaluate whether they want to remain oppressed, there's probably going to be some sort of uprising, right? But even within that, looking at it through the lens of that 
there was a time period in this culture where the four-armed lizard, lizard people ruled that in, inevitably it asks the same question of like, are we all doomed to have this perennial power struggle of like, you get in power, you become corrupt, and then you oppress people, and then you get sub supplanted by the people you oppressed, and then they get in power, and then they become corrupt, and then they oppress. So hopefully the story itself isn't like a black and white, just like these poor four-armed aliens. It's it hopefully over the course of the, the four-issue story that Angel Hernandez and I are telling, there will be verisimilitude in, in the levels of gray, and there will be people and characters that will shift and change and maybe they'll end it a little bit more of a gray area of like, we won, but at what cost or we lost, but we gained this thing or, you know, the, 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 I think that's the really interesting thing about Star Trek is that because the franchise is so long storied and has such a history that there are so many ways in which you can reevaluate these tropes and, and constantly be assessing where we are as a culture right now. Because like you said, there's a, a long history of politics and, and political allegory and um, the a questioning of the status quo that Star Trek has. And that's the thing that I think is, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combination. That's what I love about Star Trek is that we're always attempting to be better. And then sure, there are times in Star Trek's history where it's ditched some of that to try and be a little bit more of a commercial product, like certain eras of the movies have been a little bit more emphasis on, you know, we want to do more action adventure story and less politics, which is fine. I think that's fun too. I think there's a room, there's room in Star Trek for it all. You know what I mean? Like this, the stuff that I'm just typically more drawn to is the little, you know, the more probing question asking Star Trek. That's all. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, my name is Walker Brandt, and I was privileged to play the role of Cadet Hajar in the episode, The First Duty, Star Trek, The Next Generation. I was also a guest on Trek Untold a few months ago. And during my interview with Matt, I introduced my new book, Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence. The dedication in Awaken reads to the human spirit, the final frontier within. I'm a Trekkie, I'm a fan, and I have always believed that the final frontier is our unlimited imagination. And the reason I wrote my book 
is to support the reader to always remember that when you combine your unlimited imagination with your innocence, you know, that playfulness as a child where you had no fear about the unknown. In fact, every single day you woke up into the unknown and you wanted to explore. That's been my journey. And that's how I believe that we change our reality for the better together because we're all creators and we're all explorers. So I ask you, what excites you? How will you expand and go where you've never been before? What steps will you take to embrace the unknown? So awaken, discovering yourself through the light of your innocence is there to support the reader, to share my journey, to let you know you're not alone, to let you know that if you've been through challenges and difficulties and times in your life where you felt like you just couldn't go on, I've been there with you. And this book is there for you to encourage you to keep getting back up and moving forward into the adventure. So I hope you have a chance to read it. It's titled Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence, and it's available on Amazon. And it's the number one international bestseller. So I hope you get a chance to get on that journey with me. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at walkerbrandt.com or on my social media, Facebook, Instagram. Thanks so much. And I hope we get a chance to connect. We now return to Trek Untold. So when it comes to Star Trek comics, I feel like the creative team either gets it or they don't. Uh, you know, case in point, I go back to the very first DC Star Trek uh, The Next Generation comics, the first six issue miniseries. All the characters are basically looking like roided up monsters, uh, you know, not very good. So I feel like, you know, in this case, uh, you know, Angel Hernandez has done an amazing job illustrating this. Uh, he really visually captured the feel of a Voyager episode. Uh, and likewise, I think he really kind of captured the dialogue and how the characters act and feel and talk to each other. I do especially like how saucy Tuvok is, though, but uh, yeah, just, <laughs> he yeah. really is. Yeah, he's. But yeah, let's tell us a little bit about, you know, how you found those voices for these characters and how you were able to actually effectively portray them in comics. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I just want to uh, drill down a little bit to what you said about Angel Hernandez. Like, he is awesome. I think it's really hard to make a Star Trek comic that is both fidelitous to the visual nature of the fact that it is a tv show and people want to see the characters and they want them to look like the actors and i think that's very hard to do on a on a level that is not just and now i'm tracing photos and there are a lot of star trek comics that are just people importing images into photoshop and tracing them and uh angel is obviously looking at reference but it's not stiff it's not weird and wonky and the anatomy isn't strange like it's really really it's really well done and I, I i every time i get pages from him i'm just always impressed by his professionalism and ability like i i i'm an illustrator too and i couldn't do that like i, I couldn't i could not make this book the way that he is making this book and that's why he's so perfectly casted for it um specifically his tuvok i love i love the way he draws tim russ's tuvok like it's so perfect um and I just, you know, for what you were asking about, like the capturing the tone and the the kind of character voices, that's something I paid a lot of attention to. Like I literally made a, a chart for myself of like, these are the X number of characters I'm going to use. And these are the vocal ticks of all of the characters. And these are the things they like. You know, some of them, some of them I just knew, like Tuvok is always kind of like, he's Spock, but if you just turned up the sarcasm a little bit. That's a good um, way to put it. Yeah. And I love, Tuvok is my favorite. It's funny, a lot of people have pointed out that, you know, Tuvok has some funny moments. And it's true, he does. Mostly because he's my favorite Star Trek character, period. Like, across the board. So, 
I love Seven of Nine. I love Janeway. I love Spock. I love Kirk. I love, you know, I love Data. Everybody loves Data. But like my favorite captain is Cisco, and my favorite character overall is Tuvok. I, that was my my one goal, right? Of like, it's a, a huge honor to work on Star Trek. I'm a massive Star Trek fan. And if I had my druthers, I would have just pitched a, a Tuvok story. But I don't think that anybody really wants that as much as I do. So I pitched the Seven of Nine story. And then I just snuck in a lot of Tuvok moments because I just love him. And I think also the thing that I personally am, and it's just such a missed opportunity about the Voyager show is that once Jerry Ryan came on in the fourth season and seven of nine, all the writers kind of like fell in love with using her character. She kind of supplanted Tuvok and she, she got all of the stories that could have been Tuvok stories. So he kind of got pushed to the back burner, which I understand. Look, she's a new character. You're excited about her. She's popular with the fan base. I get it. But there's part of me that's like, you know, it would have been really interesting if in Janeway's mentorship of Seven of Nine, there had been a couple episodes where she'd been like, I don't know how to do this. Too bad. Sort this out with this Borg woman, you know, and like have him express to her, I too struggle with relating to these humans sometimes. They're kind of annoying in this way, but I've been around for hundreds of years. So this is how I do it. Or this is how this lesson can be learned. Um and I think that some of the character interactions that you're probably noticing are my desire to tell that kind of story. Like I would love to tell a like a mentorship friendship episode story where Tuvok helps Seven of Nine through some sort of problem that only really they can understand because they both struggle with emotion and and relating to humans through the lens of their his Vulcan culture or her um, Borg culture and her her you know human side being just suppressed for so long. But I, I also love uh, Janeway. Like there's a moment in the in the first issue where uh, I, I I always had whenever I watched Voyager, I always wished that they would make a bigger deal out of her hair changes because it's so funny to me. It's so funny how they're just like, we don't fucking know what to do with her hair. Uh, Weird, like nineties poofy wall thing. That doesn't work. Uh, Down. No, that doesn't work back. I guess that works down again, Bob. Like you can tell that the, the, you know, the Berman era crew was kind of just like, I don't know what to do with this. And so I specifically wrote, like the there's a scene where her and Tuvok are kind of walking to the bridge for you know the start of the day and they're having a discussion and she's kind of like yeah, I don't really I don't know if I like this haircut yet because apparently that's a component of the character we both know it's behind the scenes they didn't know what to do with her hair but it's in the show she has multiple haircuts there has to be something there that we can kind of tether to her character in terms of like Somebody who's, you know, I mean, hair is something that's very personal, right? Hair is something that's very, it's something that you can both easily change and becomes a part of your identity very quickly. And when you're far away, you know, a million bazillion galaxies away from your fiance who you can't talk to, you can't really confide in anyone. 
other than your in air quotes first mate best friend Tuvok, who's probably not that great of like a shoulder to cry on because he doesn't have like access to his emotions you're going to look for ways to kind of help yourself through that you're going to look for ways to change it up and apparently or at least that's what i kind of intuited is janeway fucks with her hair she's like because she doesn't get the you know she doesn't start doing art therapy until the third or fourth season right or is it fifth no it's fourth because there's that episode with her and um uh what's his what's her face uh seven of nine where they go into the holodeck and she's like teaching her how to sculpt so it's around the fourth season that she's like doing art therapy and she's obviously someone that is looking for a way to express these things that she is guarded about unlike picard who just kind of like tamps everything down and he's just like i will not express emotion tea a gray hot like she's somebody who is aware that she can't necessarily confide in all of her crew still views them as family but is looking for a way to express whatever those frustrations she's feeling in and i intuited that as haircuts thus comedic scene where her and tuvok are talking about a haircut <laughs> and i have to say i really enjoy your picard impersonation i look forward to hopefully hearing more of that throughout this interview <laughs> yeah for sure yeah, I uh, I I love I I have like weird almost impressions of a lot of the characters, which I'm I'm sure is probably part of the reason why I might be able to write them you know adequately because you you when you watch Star Trek for years at a time you just end up kind of like like at least I do I'm a you know a, a theater nerd I'm a comedy nerd so like when when there's something that happens repeatedly I just end up picking up on it and like doing bits as the character for like weeks on end. Like I, 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 for a while I did a recurring bit where I would, I would talk to my uh, girlfriend as Janeway, but like we were getting sucked into uh, some sort of wormhole and I would give her orders as Janeway of like, please turn the ship 45 degrees. We're going into the wormhole. Mr. Dakota, we're going into the wormhole. No, you don't understand. The wormhole is right there. And like, I, I'm sure this isn't funny to anyone, but it's really funny to me. And the fact that it's not funny to anyone else makes it even funnier. <laughs> well put, well put. <laughs> so, and I know our audience loves to hear stories about the behind the scenes process of how things get made. So uh, if you can briefly, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit about the collaboration process you and Angel had, but more so I kind of want to hear about what it's like to be working with CBS because I imagine they had to have their say in this whole process. So, uh, you know, I guess tell us a little bit about what you did with Angel, how you guys did your project together, but more so, how deeply involved was CBS in saying what you could and couldn't do? So um, the angel thing has been great, um, but full disclosure, we normally I'm very, very involved with the art side of things, partly because I'm an illustrator too. Um, but for this project, I'm a little bit removed just because I think CBS kind of likes to have silos a little bit, you know, and keep things very professional. Um, so the way that I have kind of, hopefully communicated to um, Angel is that all of my scripts open with a letter to him where I'm saying, Hey, Angel, I'm really excited to be working with you. Uh, like the first episode or first issue script, I literally was just like, look, man, I know you've been around. You made a lot of Star Trek comics. You made a lot of Transformers comics. I've made a lot of comics too, but Star Trek means a lot to me. And I want to make the best Star Trek comic ever. Will we succeed? I don't know but I want to try to make the best Star Trek comic of all time because I know that Star Trek has had a big impact on me and I know that 
when I am feeling low, I go to Star Trek and it buoys my spirit and, and helps me. And I want to try to be there for somebody else. And I think that this story and us as a team could really do that. And so, you know, I wrote that to him in like, whatever, a, a page. And then the, oh, wow, it was a dog or something outside having a, having a good time. I, so, you know, I, I wrote that to him as kind of a way to try and be like, look, man, I'm, I, I'm in it to win it. I want to make the best Star Trek comic that's ever been made. Um, and, you know, from there, every episode, every script, uh, every script issue script opens with a letter from me being like, hey, saw the, you know, art from the last issue. Things look great. This is awesome. I think you really nailed that. I think we should try and do some more of that here in this scene over there. Blah, 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 blah. So, you know, and and obviously our, our editor, Chase, has been awesome, too. And he, he really he's very he's very open to me making suggestions that he will pass on to Angel and um, he's been a very, he's been a strong ally, uh, in the whole process. Um, and then in terms of, um, the CBS component, they pretty much have, I mean, other than, you know, I kind of was given a, we want, I, I was given a remit of like, we want the story, you know, I, I got asked if I wanted to pitch. I said, yes, obviously. And then they said, we want the story to take place in the original seven year mission because we don't necessarily want to run into any problem areas with Picard or if they're going to do a seven of nine show or, you know, in the middle area, we don't like basically don't pitch seven with the Fenris Rangers in the middle area between end of Voyager and beginning of Picard. Don't do that. And I was like, cool. Sounds great. No problem. I'll set it during the original show. Uh, and they wanted, they, they, they were like, if it can be a story that showcases seven of nine, that would be preferable. Um, because she's obviously kind of, back on everyone's mind because of her appearance on Picard. Um, and so then I wrote the pitch, which is what I've been talking to you about. And um, maybe like three months later, two months later, I kind of don't remember the timeline. It's kind of fuzzy because, you know, 2020 is a hellscape. Um, uh, they were like, great. We want to do it. Sounds awesome. Can you write a little bit more fleshed out of a outline? And I don't remember them having any significant notes. They might've said like, I think they wanted clarification of on something that happened in the third issue, but it wasn't like, don't do that. It was just like, can you explain a little bit more what this thing means? Um, and then other than that, it's been pretty minor notes. You know, they've been very supportive. They've been very professional and kind of just, there's, there was only like one or two things in the first issue that they were just like, this is reading a little weird. Can we maybe add, so-and-so saying this thing to kind of clear that up and i was like yeah sure that sounds great um that's good but other than that easy to work with yeah i mean my experience so far has been that whether everyone is you know i, I don't know but mine so far has been pretty and maybe it was just because my outline was a little tight you know so maybe they just they just knew what it was going to be so it wasn't an issue maybe if it had been a little looser and then you know, they get surprised by something. Maybe that could have been weird. Um, but no, they were, they were pretty, you know, we're, we're not through the whole process yet. So maybe <laughs> there's still time, but so far, um, you know, I've gotten notes back on the first three issues, I think. And I think, and nothing really has changed. I mean, you know, little, little things here and there, like, Oh, can you change this? Oh, I think CBS had one question about 
the alien language and the universal translator and the way that the universal translator functions and is this canonically similar to everything else and just kind of it wasn't again it wasn't like change it it was just like a hey just double checking this is how this works and that's how that works and we were sure we want to do this thing right because i kind of feel like there was something over there that was a little different um about the universal translator but we honestly i uh, looked at memory alpha and was like oh yeah, that's right. It is how that works. Uh, blah, 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 blah. You're right. Yes, I'll change this one line here or whatever it was. So aside from Seven's Reckoning, uh, you previously worked on another Star Trek comic for IDW, and that was with the Waypoint special from 2018, uh, which is, I think, that's actually probably my first entry point into the IDW Star Trek comics. I wasn't really reading them much before then, um, but I heard good things about the Waypoint special, and uh, I still think it's like one of the best things they've done. Uh, and I think like that one in particular, it's a really strong issue. And, uh, you know, I didn't know this when I was chatting with you, but you know, I, I did reread the issue and your story that you did was actually, I think my favorite in the whole book. Oh, wow. Yeah, Thank and, you so uh, much. It's, it's really cool to actually talk to you and be able to tell you that. Um, yeah. You did a story about Esri Dax. I thought it was just really great. Uh, very, very clever way you did the story. Uh, yeah. I'd love to hear if you, I'd love to just tell our audience a little bit about uh, that story that you wrote for Waypoint in 2018. Yeah, sure. Um, so that story was co-created with Nicole Gu, who uh, is my collaborator on a few different projects. We do a book, a romance book called, Fuck Off Squad, and um, we have a book that is going to be published by Simon and Schuster in 2021 or 2022. I don't remember when it's coming out. The book, the trade market publication, unlike direct market stuff, is just like years away. Um, but yeah, so we have a we have a, a coming of age um, comic coming from Simon and Schuster called Forest Hills Bootleg Society, and you know we've worked on a bunch of stuff together. And, and Nicole had written and drawn a story for a gem in the holograms book, which I'm blanking on the name of, but it's basically the, the equivalent of waypoint for gem in the holograms. So, you know, bunch of stories done by uh, cool up and coming creators. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to like be super deep in the gem in the holograms ongoing series at the time. You can just read this one story and it's gem in the holograms and some other kids doing some stuff. Um, Starlight girls, I believe is what it's called. It's about a bunch of young girls who were starting a band called the Starlight Girls. And um, so she had worked with IDW for that. IDW hit it off with her. She was, they were like, what do you want to do next? She was like, I'm a big Star Trek fan. Um, and they were like, great. You guys want to pitch for Waypoint? And so I wrote, I think we pitched like four or five things. Um, but it's two years ago now, so I kind of don't remember. The only one I remember, oh, no, I know we at least pitched three things. I, we pitched a, a Crusher story where she has to do surgery or shrink down and go in someone's body or something. I don't remember the specifics, but it's, it's a surgery like procedural. It basically, my pitch was what if Osamu Tezuka's blackjack starred Beverly Crusher. Uh, and then we pitched something about uh, Julian Bashir in his Arman Bashir holodeck, James Bond thing. And then we pitched the Ezra Dax thing and they, they picked the Ezra Dax thing, which I was honestly, that's the one I was really like, Oh, Ezri Dax one, please pick the Ezri Dax one. And um, yeah, basically we did a story about Ezri Dax post DS9 working on an asteroid. And it takes place in a near future where there's um, erupted a civil war between the founding members of the Federation. And there's a bunch of Andorians that are attacking this asteroid that she's basically working as a doctor on this um uh, asteroid belt, you know, chain helping people. And um, so the, the asteroid's being attacked and all these 
these things are collapsing and, you know, they, basically they need to get from, it's kind of a point A to point B story where it's like, we got to get from the med bay to the uh, shuttle, the evac shuttle. And so she has to use her, her alternate, you know, Dax personas, knowledges to, you know, Oh, like this Dax was a, um, was a gymnast. So I'm going to, you know flip over stuff to go work on this thing oh this dax was an engineer so he can do the math about like how he gets from point a to point b to c to blah blah blah, blah, blah. and then you know the serial killer dax is there going ah you're a piece of shit you're gonna fail <laughs> um but yeah the, that one, i'm really excited about that one and i'm i'm really glad that we got to do it because uh nicole's illustrations are great and uh michael morto who colored it just knocked it out of the park like his colors are amazing on the series. Um, uh, so, but that, that makes me really happy that you, you enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a really strong issue too. I really, really, I liked a lot of them. I liked the, the data and his cat one by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly and Sonny Liu. There's, there's like, a lot of good ones in that. Yeah. Like the, the data's cat is a really great one. That, that's just a really strong one in general. I recommend folks if they haven't read any of the IDW comics yet, and maybe you don't want to get into comics or you're not sure if you want to get into these new ones, uh, check out the waypoint specials. Cause you get a little bit of everything in those and they're all really good. They've got some great storytellers doing those. So yeah, again, that's, that's a great one. I love that one. Uh, so yeah, thank you so yeah, much those, for that. Yo, yeah, absolutely. And the thing I like about those waypoint specials, cause they've what they've done two, three, two? Yeah, I think they've done two. And then there was like an ongoing series. And hopefully oh, they right. do another yeah. one of those. Yeah. 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 I liked the ongoing one a lot too. Um, but I, I, the thing I like about those so much is that a lot of times anthologies can be unwieldy. You know, you can get a wide range of uh, quality. And that's not necessarily what I want in an anthology. I want a wide range of style. And the nice thing about a Star Trek anthology is you kind of have this baseline of like, it has to be a science fiction story. It's probably going to be a, something that's got a little bit of a twist or, you know, a kind of social uh, allegory to it. Um, and you're going to get a wide range, but you're still going to get that wide range of, you know, Nicole draws, you know, very, you know, kind of um, cartoony or, or, you know, um, a warped reality. Like she's not drawing representationally. Whereas, um, you know, there are other artists who are in those books who are just like they're straight up trying to draw as photorealistically as possible. And I think that 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 running the gamut of style that way is really interesting. And 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 also, I just there's so many characters in Star Trek that it's fun when you have a shotgun of like, here's six different stories that are all about these different characters that probably aren't going to get their own ongoing series. You know what I mean? Like you're there's just not going to be an ongoing series about what happened to the, the guy at the end of the motion picture. You know, like, that's just not going to happen. I don't even remember that character's name. The guy from seventh heaven. Well, he's basically off in Vajira land. He actually has appeared in the comics though. I believe he actually did show up. Yeah. He, he's in. Yeah. Oh, Oh, in the new stuff. In, in the new stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. The, I don't remember which one, but he was part of, uh, Oh, I, I mean, I don't want to say cause it might be a spoiler, but he, he did show up recently or at least cool. within the last two years, let's just say. Cool. Um, I mean, I have no ill will against that character. I'm just saying you're probably not going to get an ongoing ser- series focused on that guy is all I'm yeah. saying. And it's cool that you can get those little glimpses into where, you know, this is where this person's going or same, you know, the same thing with um, what's his name? Uh, the not Doctor Who guy from the season two finale of the original series was the cat Isis. What the fuck is that guy's name? Oh, Gary seven, Gary seven. 
I've always been like, why don't they just do a Gary Seven series? Like it's well, he so... was just in it. I don't know. I, I don't know how much you're reading, just, it, but he actually just popped up. He, that's what I was just gonna say. Is he just popped up? Yeah, Jackson and and Colin used him in uh, Year Five. And, five Year Mission. Yep. Oh, Five Year Mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, I was so excited when I saw that because I was just like, I've been saying this for years. I've been saying, why don't we do like a either a Gary Seven show or a Gary Seven like comic? Like it's so primed like just you can just make it doctor who in the star trek world like that's awesome i would read that it pretty much fits in there yeah it's really good if, if folks haven't read that either uh you know check out star trek five-year mission also from idw but uh, unrelated to trek you do have another series that's coming out soon uh which is called night hunters so would you mind telling our audience a little bit about that yeah sure um yeah night hunters is a science fiction comic written by me illustrated by Alexis Zirit and lettered by Robert Negretti, published by Floating World Comics. And it is a dystopian crime comic that takes place in a world where in Venezuela, 100 years in the future, a law has been passed where if you want to have a child in a hospital, run for public office or rent an apartment, you have to have been or currently be a police officer. And so it's about these two adopted brothers who have to reconcile with that law. And one of them ends up choosing a life of crime and chooses to not um, work within that kind of corrupted system. And one of them chooses to be a police officer, partially due to the fact that he is caught in a police raid as a kid and a building collapses on him. And his father has to basically take him to a, a an illegal like black market doctor in order to get half of his body turned into a cyborg so that he can still live and in this in this you know near future planned obsolescence is like the main issue that they struggle with so you know he saves his son's life but it's really expensive to replace all of these cybernetic parts so in order to basically live this young man has to become a police officer and all of his salary basically goes to continually rebuilding himself and replacing himself. And the police department doesn't pay, pay for any of this. Um, so the book kind of uh, is this um, kind of uh, fulcrum that you know rests on this kind of idea of like inequality and, and the decisions we make and how do, how do you live in a world where you are forced into this corrupt system, but the only alternative is to, also be in a corrupt system of being a fucking like a drug dealing gangbanger ostensibly um and uh you know like i said that it takes place in in venezuela 100 years in the future and um alexis the artist is, is venezuelan and um this this the world and a lot of the characters come directly from him um and i kind of like almost in a similar way to the star trek thing where they were kind of like can you pitch something during this time and using this character and doing that over here and we probably want it to feel like something over there um alexis and i have been friends through the convention scene for years and i'm a big fan of his other books space writers and um tarantula and he was like you know i really want to do a book that is in my home country venezuela and specifically in you know a fictionalized version of caracas where he's from and uh i want it to be you know this cyberpunk futuristic you know militarized world partly because that's the stuff that he's good at drawing um and i was like oh i i totally know what that world looks like drawn in your style like i know what a weird 
dystopian fucked up favela looks like in Alexis Zirit's crazy fucked up, you know, Jack Kirby, Tijuana Bible style. Um, and so we kind of like built the world together and talked it out. And then I kind of sculpted it a little bit, gave the characters their arcs and whatnot, and then kind of really just let him run with it. And I was like, okay, this is what it is. Here's the script. And then he was like, fucking machine guns, going to draw some fucking machine guns. <laughs> so Dave, a lot of our audience, they really enjoy hearing uh, also, you know, kind of advice on how to get into comics, that sort of thing. But I think that's such a broad and very personal journey for people to get into. So I think a better question would be on the creative level. And that's um, basically more so how does one start writing a comic and how does one take it all the way to the finish line, stay invested in it, not lose interest in it, and just basically keep up with it and make something that's really good and very strong. And that's, again, a pretty still very big question, but uh, I think it's a little more focused. It might be more helpful to our people out there who want to do comic books. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think um, I think the, the main problem that everybody kind of comes up against if you're not an illustrator is how do you find an illustrator? And um, this is going to sound like something of a cop-out answer, but I think the, the main way that most writers get into writing is um, it's networking. It's being a nice person. It's, it's showing up, going to conventions and being cool because nobody wants to work with a dick bag. Like just, if you're just a nice person, you're going to go so much further than if you're a pretentious douche. So that's one side of it is like hooking up with an artist, finding somebody that's simpatico with your sensibility and your taste you, that will help you make the comic. The other side of that is um, starting small. I think most comics people, they want to make big stories because comics is a near infinite canvas and we've all read 150 issues of Preacher or whatever the fuck it is that we really like. And so everybody wants to do that right out the gate. And the way I would position that is being a, a writer is kind of like being an actor. You're not going to get hired to star as Captain America without ever having acted before. You got to show up and be a, you know, a background actor. You got to be the supporting role. You got to do, you know, you're the second on the call sheet. You're the, you're the, the you know, the best friend to the main character. And then you're the main character. And then you probably get your big starring role, right? You got to kind of, you got to hone your, you got to develop your skill. You've got to hone your craft and you've got to make connections. And the best way that I know how to do that is just what I've done, which is self-publish, which is a fucking bitch and it sucks, but it's the only way that I know how to do it. So self-publish and start small. I mean, literally like a four page comic, an eight page comic, a 10 page comic. Like that's, that's the level at which I think starting that small will help you work out the kinks, right? Um, especially when you're self-publishing, because you will be. Um, if you're going at it with that in mind, you're going to probably be spending your own money to do it, which means either you're paying an artist or you're paying for publishing. You're spending money either way. So if you are going about this with the idea of, all right, I'm going to strategically spend $300. I'm strategically going to spend $1,000, $2,000, whatever that meter is, it will help you to learn what works and what doesn't work in the language of comics and the ones and zeros. Um, like when I first kind of got serious about um, writing a, a comics and stuff, uh, I, I did a web comic where I, I'm also an illustrator. So I drew one of the characters, it's called Action Hospital. And um, 
it has, it's about a hospital that services otherworldly beings and people with extreme needs. And it's kind of like, what if the X-Men were the staff of a hospital? So everybody's kind of got weird powers and it's quirky and bizarre. And each character in the hospital is drawn by a separate artist. And each mini story about those characters is eight pages. And that was specifically done because I was like, I can probably convince a bunch of my other illustrator friends to draw eight pages. That's not crazy. Asking them to draw 20, that's like three months worth of work. Asking them to draw eight, I can guilt somebody. <laughs> Look, man, I'm, you're my friend. Come on, draw this thing. Like I, I can be annoying in that way and, and get that done. And so what I did is I put together an entire, you know, graphic novel of 300 pages where I drew some of it. My friend, this friend drew some of it, you know, Clay Merle drew some of it, Robert Negretti, Nicole, like all of the illustrators that I'm friends with, they all drew chunks of it. And then at the end of that, I had a big enough body of work that I could print a sizable book that I could sell for enough money to be able to recoup costs at convention tables. And then I started touring and I literally went all over. I mean, before the pandemic, you know, I did 20, 30 shows a year. Like that's a lot, a lot. That's multiple shows a month. Um, you know, where you're flying and you're lugging suitcases and you're doing all these things. And and that's how I met a lot of people. And from touring, that's how I made the connections with, you know, people at IDW. And that's how Nicole broke in. She uh, recently drew the DC Comics original graphic novel, Shadow of the Batgirl with Sarah Kuhn. And she got that job just from being at a convention and an editor walking up to her table and being like, oh, my God, I've seen your stuff on the Internet would you be interested in doing a, a thing for us? Would you be interested in drawing this, this bad girl comic? And so basically my, the, to summarize it, it's just fucking do it. Like I, it sucks. I don't, I don't like hearing just fucking do it, but if you're serious, if you're somebody who's serious about writing comics or you have a goal to write some, you know, Star Trek or Power Rangers or fucking Spider-Man or whatever the, the bigger thing is that you I don't even think they're really bigger because honestly at this point the sales numbers on, on Star Trek comics and the sales numbers on Spider-Man comics are just about the same as a lot of independent comics so that's you know but that's an argument for another time but the 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 goal if that goal is to work in in that you know intellectual property sphere or whatever you don't just wake up and get to do that and you don't get to do that if you've just written scripts it sucks but it's just the truth you have to have done completed comics. And the only way that that's really going to happen is if you bet on yourself and self-publish, which is what I did. And which is what almost without exception, every other person working in comics has done. Yeah. I think that's very, very excellent advice. Very actionable advice as well. Uh, that definitely is the best way to do it. I've heard that as well. Like I, I went to Pratt for illustration and I had a sequential art class there. And another tip actually my instructor gave us, I want to share here today too for any listeners is, uh, you know, he always told me that no one cares about your character. When you're first getting started, nobody cares about your brilliant character that you think is going to change the comic book industry. What publishers are more so going to be, going to be interested in is seeing, you know, what you can do with something that already exists per, per se. Um, and that doesn't mean go out and do a Spider-Man or do a Batman, but, you know, try and find something maybe that's more closer to real life or something that's maybe more relatable. Um, but basically, you know, just ultimately it was your grand idea might not be so grand at this point in time. Let it kind of sit, let it sit with you and hopefully improve as you improve. So uh, yeah, I think your advice is really great to go into with that too, is just, you know, start small. I think that's really good. Yeah. And I, I think there's also, it becomes addicting, like, you know, good in a bad way, I guess. Like my, my kitchen right now is just 
filled with books. Like, I mean, it's stacks and stacks and stacks of brown cardboard boxes with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books in them. Um, because, you know, you, you do print runs of 2,000 books sometimes. And like, are you going to sell all those 2,000? We'll see, maybe. I don't know. It's a, but it's a batting average, right? You're not trying to hit a home run every time out of the gate. Sometimes you're just trying to get on base. You're just trying to, come on, I'm just trying to get this book printed, have there be no typos, have the art be really cool, and have the story be something I'm proud of. And at the end of the day, hopefully that has that connects with somebody. But right now, those are the important things that I'm focusing on. And then when you're done, and that's not to say you're you're phoning it in or you're you know, taking the reader for granted or anything. But there's a difference between I'm trying to make a thing and just have it exist. Then I'm trying to make 500 issues of like Dune-esque epic magnum opus, you know, like those are, those are different goals. Do I have some things that I would like to do as 500 issue Dune-esque magnum opus? Yes, absolutely. Everybody does. Every comic book person has those stories, but I, I am well, well aware of the after having published three 250-plus page volumes of Action Hospital, I can tell you, having large dreams is a burden sometimes. <laughs> sometimes there's a relief to just being like, all right, how many issues of this Star Trek thing do I got to write? Fuck yeah, I can do that. Type, 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 type. It's very true. It's, it's kind of like a stand-up comedian. You know, they got their tight five. It's very much the same kind of thing. And I, not that I'm speaking from experience, but uh, it sounds like it's very much the same thing. They're just basically get it tight. And that's the most important thing is show that you can do a self-contained story and that you can make it work in a limited amount of space. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way, right? 2000 AD's, um, you know, format of that. They, they bring people into the, the magazine by those future shock four page stories. If you can tell a good story in four pages with a nice twist, you can probably sell it, you know, you, you can probably tell it in 20 and then you can probably tell it in 40 and then you can probably tell it in four issues. And you can probably tell it in a graphic novel. You can probably tell it over 500 issues. But if you can't do four pages, you probably can't do the others. So Dave, last question for you today. And that's what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh man. Oh man. This is such a big question. I would say I would make two points. One, I really mean what I said in terms of infinite diversity and infinite combination is something that's very deeply personal to me. Um, I come from an area of the country that's not particularly open. It's a fairly closed place and they have lots of issues surrounding um, social equality and racism and uh, access to education, access to healthcare. um, and, And being from that environment makes it imminently clear to me that it is very vitally important that we never stop talking about the point that we all exist is to support each other. And that is what Star Trek is at its core, infinite diversity and infinite combination, you know, going out and saying, Hey, there's so much to discover. Let's discover it together. That is something that is deeply emotionally resonant with me. And I, I believe that to my core. And maybe that's, me being a you know a comic nerd trapped inside and growing up without any friends, which isn't true. I had friends, but you know what I mean. Like maybe that's just me being like, oh, this comic it's speaking to me directly. But that is something that is so primally important about Roddenberry's vision and what Star Trek can mean. Um, that I I feel an immense sense of pride to have even 
just a little, just a little bit of just on that, on that long lineage of people telling stories, which leads me to my second point in that the thing I love about so many of these kind of long running franchises is that they're almost a cultural game of telephone. There are people building a brick wall of stories, fictional things, and they're putting these bricks one on top of each other and they're building this giant story edifice to uh, to what we believe. And there are periods where that wall to me is very repugnant, not in Star Trek necessarily. I'm just saying in culture, like there are periods where what we believe is very regressive and, and very dark and very antagonistic and oppressive. And then there are periods where it is um, positive and uplifting and hopeful. And, and I think that the, the combination, the yin and yang of that, of the combination of the good and the bad, the sweet and the sour is something that is so deeply intrinsically human. And that's what I love about the comics medium and specifically things like either the DC universe or the Marvel universe or Star Trek is that it is a long form storytelling experiment with hundreds of people over multiple decades. I mean, at this point, there's 50 years of Star Trek, you know, whether it's the Star Trek shows, the movies, the novels, the comics, the video games, the role-playing games, all of these stories are working in concert to make a grand statement of who we are and what we believe. And you might not agree with that in certain time periods, or you might really speak, to, it might really speak to you and others. But I think that that waxing and waning of those ideas, the sea change, the tides coming in and out is what's so fascinating. And like I said, my goal with this book was to try and make a definitive statement of, I just want to make the best Star Trek comic I can make because I know what it's like to have Star Trek be accessible to me when I needed it. And again, whether it was successful or not, that's for everybody else to decide. But uh, I'm pretty excited about the fact that I even got the at-bat. So for anybody who wants to check out Dave and Angel Hernandez's work on Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, you can pick that up in your local comic store on November 11th. You can check out Night Hunters not long after that, November 24th. And I recommend you guys do that. And especially more so, support your local comic book stores. Uh, If you haven't read a comic in a long time, now's a good time to get into it again. And, you know, with everything going on in the world, if you're afraid to go out, go into a comic book store, just give them a call beforehand. They're going to, I'm sure, have no problem just setting it aside for you. So you can just walk right in, say, hey, that's my book. And boom, you'll be out of there. But, you know, of all the businesses right now, everybody needs a lot of help. Comic stores are the one that I know for Dave and I, it's very close to our hearts. We want them to make sure that they're still kicking in 2021 and beyond. So please support your little comic stores and please support Dave's book, Star Trek Voyager, Seven's Reckoning. How's that for a sales pitch, Dave? That was great, man. I couldn't have done it better myself. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm glad we got to talk. Uh, it's about time we had a comic person on the show here because I can really nerd out as well. So yeah, thanks so much for your time. Glad we had this chat. And I look forward to seeing where Seven's Reckoning is going to go because as you mentioned, you know, we kind of get an idea of what's going to happen in the end game here, but uh, I am very excited to see what you do to get us there. So I'm looking forward to a lot of twists and turns. So thank you so much, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that was our conversation with Dave Baker, who really reminded me that I need to get more comic book people on this podcast. I had a great time talking with Dave, and I hope you enjoyed it too. And I'd love for you to hit me up on the Trek Untold Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and let me know what you thought about this interview and what you think about the Star Trek comics. The comic series that Dave alluded to as being the very first Star Trek comic series was the Gold Key Star Trek comics, which were made starting in 1967 and continued until 1978, which is then when Marvel got a hold of the license. 
The series had a run of 61 issues. Characters like Zephram Cochran, Harry Mudd, and even the Guardian of Forever showed up again in this comic series, along with plenty of other species of new alien antagonists that really could only have been shown through the comics at that time due to how limited special effects were. Today, of course, we know it's a different story. So perhaps the Crystal People of issue 34 or the Isissons from issue 30 could one day show up in a series and make them canonical. Hey, if Lower Decks can make Spock's helmet canonical, why can't we do the same with some of the old comics too? And if you want to start reading some of the IDW comics and you're wondering what a good point of entry might be, I actually do recommend those Star Trek Waypoint comics that we discussed today. They're very nice and concise. I think they're an excellent gateway to get you into the Star Trek universe and comics if you never were into them at all before. And the fact that you get a variety of characters and different stories in one issue also makes them pretty appealing to someone that might not even really be into comics as much. You might find yourself an issue that's got a character from the original series, from the next generation, from Deep Space Nine, or whatever, and they're all really interesting stories. So definitely check out the Star Trek Waypoint series. And of course, don't forget to check out Star Trek Voyager, Seven's Reckoning, which should be out just about when this podcast is released. And if you're listening to this podcast in the far future, well, that's even better news because most likely by then, it'll hopefully be collected into a trade paperback and you can get the entire four-issue miniseries in one easy-to-read book. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Please make sure you follow us on social media to see all of our memes and daily guest updates. And who knows what else, because you never know what pops up on our pages. All you have to do is look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. You can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. That's T-E-E spring.com. That includes shirts, stickers, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. But most importantly, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and give us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you enjoy what we do here every week on this show, please give us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to make new listeners discover this podcast and help us grow. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, would like to be booked on the show, or are interested in sponsoring us, email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. Once again, this has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.